share with you today, my, my message today is called Counterculture. And uh, the reason I'm entitled to that is because, you know, since, since 9-11, our culture has definitely changed. Uh, I, I don't know if we can necessarily blame 9-11 for it, but we have absolutely in the last 15 years, our culture in this country has gone from, uh, has, has progressively become more and more secular. Uh, less and less people all the time are claiming affiliation with any religion or any church. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't say that today to be a downer or to, to, for us to get all worried and say, oh, no, what's happening? Because, you know, this isn't the first time in history that the church has been in decline. And it's not something that should scare us or make us feel anxious or, oh, no, Christianity is going to be snuffed out. We know from the word of God that that's never going to happen. And we also know that when Christianity is suffering and when, and when uh, the culture is, is against it, that it tends to grow. And, and what it is, I believe, and the reason the Lord allows that is for his remnant, for his body to, to wake up and to say, okay, this isn't good that, that our culture is running away from the church. They should be running to the church. There was a time when if you had a problem, you ran to the church because you believed that the church had answers for you. Well, now when people are asked, they, a lot of them feel like church is actually part of the problem. Now, obviously for some, that's just their their opinion, obviously, it's, it's not necessarily truth, but that's how they perceive it. You know, whether it's the fact that, that it was that those twin towers were attacked in the name of religion, and so a lot of people are just lumping all religions together, I don't know. But I know that the world is not running to the church. They did immediately following the attacks. In fact, church attendance was up 6 to 15% for about a month and a half. You know, people were running to church saying, what's the answer? We need help. And they were running to God. They were running to, to what they felt was God for them. And uh, in fact, a lot of people back then, I remember, were excited thinking, man, maybe this is what it took to break revival out in this country. And people started getting excited thinking, you know, this is it. We're going to see a great awakening and it's going to be wonderful. And unfortunately, after about a month and a half, church attendance went back down to normal. And in fact, it's it's actually struggled since then in a lot of areas. Now, we live in the Bible Belt. And as you can see today, there's a lot of people here at church. So I wouldn't say necessarily that New Hope is struggling or suffering because of it. But if you go into the, the Northeast, the Northwest, into big cities all over the U.S., you, you know that, that a lot of people are walking away from faith in God. And that's something for us as believers that we have to be diligent. We have to be proactive. We have to be seeking God and saying, what's our role in helping to change that trend? Because God has used us. He has called us. We are the church. And, you know, Jesus said that he built his church on the rock. Of Peter, He built the church on Peter and he said, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we are the church and, and Satan is not supposed to prevail against us. We are called to prevail against him. And right now he's kind of he's having a, a bit of a feast and, and having a lot of fun in our, in our country. And uh, it's not, I'm not okay with that. And I've actually seen where uh, in some respects, some of, the, some of the, the characteristics of our culture have somewhat infiltrated into the church. You know, we as a church are supposed to affect our culture, but, but the culture is actually affecting the church in a lot of ways. And, uh, but God has given us tools to not allow that to happen to us and for us to be proactive and to be able to be an agent of change for our culture. And I'm not talking about, you know, being religious and making laws where everybody has to do exactly what the Bible says, but to be an agent of change and that people will see the love of God in us and they will want what we have. Amen. That's what God wants from us. And so I want to talk to you about that today. I want to share a few a few areas that I feel like the, that uh, the culture has affected our church, first of all, not, not New Hope per se, but the church at, at large. And culture has, has uh, affected change in, within us, causing us to uh, use culture, use the society that we live in as kind of our moral standard in some areas, but then also give you some, some tools that I believe that God can help us to, to not allow that to happen. So I want to jump right into it. I want to share a verse with you. It's out of Romans 12, 2. 
Most of you know it and have heard it and probably have, have, have it memorized. In the NIV, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And you can see I have that first part underlined because that's the command for God for us as a church. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I also love what the message says about the, for this verse. It's, it's really great. I know it's a paraphrase, but it's, it really sums it up. It says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-informed maturity in you. So that is, that, that's the command from God. That's the, that's the warning kind of from God is that don't, don't become so part of your, of your society, of your culture, that you just blend in. We're not called to blend in, amen? Now, we don't have to be the, the obnoxious Christians that tell everybody they're going to hell. We don't, we don't have to be that either, but we're definitely not meant to blend in. Our faith, you know, the, the enemy has lied to some of us and said that our faith is a private thing. And that's just, that's just between me and God. That is absolutely contrary to the word of God. We are not meant to have a private faith. We're supposed to wear our faith boldly and proudly and be the love of Jesus. Jesus has entrusted us to be his agents to reach those people out there that don't know him. It's up to us. If, if, if all the Christians in the world just sat around and prayed all day and asked God to save everybody that's not saved, not many people would get saved because he's asked us to be his hands and feet and to take the gospel to the people so that they can hear it. And so he's called us to that. And, so, and, and because there are, there are so many things that have infiltrated the church, I wanna share three of them with you today. And uh, three key areas that I believe the church has allowed culture to shape our thinking. And I do this as kind of a, uh, just a thing for us to, uh, to remind us, you know, to help us to, to, to look introspectively and say, okay, is this something I'm dealing with? And if so, it's not to condemn us. It's for us to say, okay, yes, I've allowed the world to set the standard for me in this area of life. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna continue down that path. I wanna be an agent of change and, of, and, and look into the word of God for my direction. So the first, the first area of influence that the that culture's had on us is in humanism. Now, humanism basically says, I am the most important person in my universe. It's, uh, it's, it's, you are the, I'm sorry, the meaning of life is for the happiness of man. That's a way to sum it up. A lot of you have heard of humanism, you know what it is. It basically means it's where the whole thing of if it feels good, do it. It's absolutely no question about it. It is the philosophy of the world. It just is. If you don't have God, that's, that is a great philosophy. You know, I, I'm here on this earth. I don't know God. So I might as well just live for my own happiness. If it doesn't hurt anybody else, what's the problem? There's nothing wrong with that as a standard if you don't know God. But when you know the word of God, you realize that humanism is absolutely contrary to what the word of God says. And, you know, we're all in church today. And so we all know the correct answer. If I, you know, if I say, you know, who's first in your life, we'd all say Jesus. You know, it's the church answer. And, and, and we probably, we even believe it. I'm not saying we're being phony or frauds. We believe that Jesus is meant to be the most important thing in our life. He's, he's meant to be the one that our life revolves around. He doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around him. He is the center of our universe. He's meant to be the center. And it's easy today to feel that way and to say that and proclaim it. The problem is we're not gonna stay here forever, right? In this building and in church and listening to really good preaching, amen? We are, we are going to have to get up and we're gonna have to go out to the parking lot, get in our cars and go home and go to restaurants and go to work tomorrow and go do our thing. That's where it's a little harder to not have the humanistic approach in life. Where it's a little harder to say, yeah, I'm not the most important person in my universe because because there's things we have to do to survive. We have to work, we have to 
get our sleep. We have to eat. We have to shower. We have to bathe. If you want to stay married, it's really important that you bathe. And we have to do the things that we have to do. And so it's very easy for us to like, kind of let that consume us. It's not that we want to be selfish and we want to put ourselves first. We almost, if we're not proactive though, the flesh just kind of takes over and we become the center of our own universe. And that's, that's contrary to what God would want for us. But it has infiltrated the church in so many ways. We're all guilty of it at times. I find myself, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I joke about it. I'm a professional Christian. I'm on staff at a church. And it's still hard for me some days to not make myself the center of my universe. You know, I, I had some, some stuff happen this week that was tough. And it made me, it's real easy for me to just become self, you know, self-analyzing and just looking at my own needs and what I need and not focusing outwardly. And of course we go through, you know, periods in our life or, or moments or days in our life where that, that's a necessary thing. But as a whole, our life should be that God is the center of it and everything we do is focused around him and what he wants for us. And one of the biggest uh, things that, that grieves my heart when it comes to being humanistic in, in a church and as a Christian is the fact that it, it creates apathy for the lost in our own lives. I know for myself, I've gone through seasons. You know, I've, I've told you guys before, I spent five years in missions. I, I gave, I can honestly say I gave a lot. I sacrificed a lot to be in missions and, and being overseas and living in, in, a, in the Sahara Desert and doing things that were very uncomfortable. And those were great times. But you would think that after doing that, that it would just stick with you for the rest of your life. And you would just think, you know, your heart would just constantly break for the lost. I go through seasons where I have to remind myself that there are lost people because I'm always surrounded by Christians. You know, you work at a church, I'm, all my friends are Christians, my family's saved. So you, you can easily find yourself just being around Christians and you can have, get this total apathy for the lost. In fact, I have a little, uh, little piece of paper that uh, uh, I taped up on the side of my desk in my office that I, that I look at constantly. And it's just a, it's a proclamation where I, I'm, it says, I, uh, I renounce my self-focus which creates apathy towards the lost. And then it goes on and says other things, but that's the line that really sticks out to me because self-focus creates apathy for the lost. And that is, and God's heart is for the lost. You know, Jesus said he leaves the 99 to go after the one and, and that should be our heart. But humanism creeping into our lives as Christians causes us to be more self-focused and we don't care as much about the lost and the needs and what God would call us to do. And it's so important that we pray constantly and ask God to give us his heart for the lost. It's not human nature to care about lost people, church. It's just not. In your own flesh, when, when you care about somebody getting saved, that's not you. That's the Holy Spirit in you. And that has to be the part in us that's, that's raising up and is more, is more prevalent in our lives, you know, that we're feeding our spirit man so that, we are, that our hearts are drawn to the lost and wanting to see the lost saved. Of course, we always want to see lost people saved, but are we really willing to make sacrifices to make that happen? If you're approaching your faith from a humanistic point of view, you're not. You're just kind of hoping that people do it. You're hoping that people get saved down at the bridge or at Adopt-A-Block or in the church or people come to church and hopefully they'll get saved. And you know, you, you want it, but it's not something you're really willing to sacrifice for or to make any, any real sacrifices to try to make that happen. And that's what humanism does. And it's, it's coming to the church. So I want to move on to the next one because I want to I get all these in because I really want to share them with you guys. Uh, the next one is greed. Greed has worked its way into the church. Now, I know greed is an ugly word. We don't like to throw it around because when you think of somebody that's greedy, it's kind of slimy. But greed has many forms and many variations. Really, greed is just an intense, selfish desire for something. That's all it is. So if I read that correctly, then I think all of us have dealt with greed in our life. Every one of us. My kids deal with it every day. 
if it's just an intense selfish desire for something. Uh, we're confronted with it constantly. As adults, we have a little bit, we're a little better at masking it. You know, we make it, we, we use the words like ambitious and go-getter and, and just, uh, you know, just really driven and stuff like that. And, and we use that as an excuse to, to allow ourselves to, to steamroll over people and to not consider other people when we're going after the dollar or going after material possessions or things like that. And, and sadly, I've seen it a lot in the church. I really have. Greed is definitely prevalent in the church. And we've, we've allowed the world to set the standard for us on what greed is and what, what, how we should approach uh, the things in our life. And, and I want to make a statement that I believe that greed is one of the top one or two things that hinders the Christian life. It really is. It hinders us so much because we can get so focused and intensely focused on something that we want so badly that we allow it to, to consume us in some ways and we allow it to motivate us. We allow it to, to direct us. We, we make decisions based on the fact that we wanna climb the corporate ladder or make more money or, or uh, have more things. And, and do not get me wrong. I am not against climbing the corporate ladder or making more money or having more things. Absolutely not. I think, I think those are all good things. It's when those things control you. You know, somebody said one time, it's not wrong to have things. It's wrong when the things have you. And uh, it, we have to just be very careful with that because greed is, is something the word of God speaks against very much. In fact, in uh, Luke 12, verse 15, this is Jesus talking. It says, then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is, is, is basically very emphatic in this. He's saying, watch out. Watch out, people. Church, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. We have to be on our guard. That tells me that Jesus is telling us, hey, listen, greed is looking to pop rear its ugly head all the time. So we have to be on our guard against it. You have to have your guard up. You can't just sit back and think, ah, I'll be all fine. I'll be all right. Greed's coming at you. It's coming at all of us. It's in our human nature to want more stuff and to, to want it selfishly and to want to appease ourselves. And what happens is, is that one of the byproducts of greed in the church is that we have all this huge debt. You know, that's, that's the financial aspect of it. Uh, money is a big deal. We all need money. Jesus, but Jesus said the love of money is the root of all evil. And what happens is we've allowed the world to set the standard for us on how we should spend money and how, what we should do. And what's happening is we're all accumulating all this huge debt and, and, and being drowned in debt. You know, Dave Ramsey has made gajillions of dollars helping people get out of debt. Because, and what he does is he gives biblical principles on what the Bible says about, what, about how we should approach debt. And, and I'm nobody saying you can't have any debt. I mean, I have a mortgage, you know, that, that's not necessarily, there, there's, there's parts of having some debt that can be necessary at times. But what the, the problem is, is that we just accumulate all this debt because we want stuff and we're not willing to wait. And really what that boils down to is it's just greed. You know, I did a, uh, I did a men's conference up in Ohio this past spring and, um, it was a weekend conference and there was about 35 guys there or so. And, and uh, I, I, was, I did like five sessions. And one of the sessions was on uh, living in freedom from mediocrity. And uh, just talked to the guys about, you know, we don't have to live a mediocre life. We don't have to just kind of get through the day and live for the weekends and do the best we could do. We can actually live a, a powerful, effective life. And, uh, and one of the arguments I gave was with mediocrity is that part of the reasons we live so mediocre is because we're so fixated on the wrong thing. We're fixated on getting stuff, keeping up with the Joneses, having a bigger house than we just moved in, you know, upgrading our house, upgrading our cars, upgrading our phones, upgrading our computers, upgrading everything. And, and we get so fixated on that that we live in mediocrity because we're missing out on what God really has for us. 
And, uh, you know, it was good, and I, and I thought it went well. And um, my, my brother was there, and he, he, uh, he's a spirit-filled guy, loves Jesus with all his heart, and, you know, is doing well. And on the way back, he, he looked at me, and he said, you know, he said that, that, uh, that word you gave today really convicted me. He said, I've realized that I'm a greedy person. And, man, it knocked me back because, you know, the word greed, obviously, it is an ugly word. And my immediate response, I wanted to say, no, no, you're not greedy. You're generous. He's a very generous person. He gives a lot. He's very helpful. He works in his church. He works in his community. Uh, he does so much. And I wanted to kind of defend him when he said that he struggles with greed, but I didn't. I, I just stepped back and, and let him talk. And he said, you know, I'm just so fixated on this, on, on this one thing right now. And I, I don't need to share what it's about, but it was, it was something that all of us would say, oh, that's no big deal. You know, that's fine if you want that. That's good. You work hard. You should be able to do that. And he said, but it's, I could just tell that it's, it's, it's becoming something that's all encompassing of me. It's, in, it's consuming me and making me like all my decisions are based on making sure that this happens. And he said, I realized that I'm greedy. And, uh, you know, he really, he prayed through it. And, and uh, it's been really remarkable. In fact, the, the fruit from that, his admission of that and what God's done in his life since then has been really incredible. Uh, I wish I had time to share it with you. But, but that's just it. Like we as believers, we have to be real with ourselves. And say, okay, where do I struggle with greed? If I do, where, what areas do I struggle with greed? Am I allowing the world to set the standard for me in what I should have and what I should do with my money, with my time, with my giftings? Am I allowing them to set the standard? Or am I trying to be somebody that could change the standard and people could see, people in the world would see my standard and it would challenge and encourage them? So greed has come in. Uh, And then the last one is instant gratification. Now, we all know that delayed gratification is of God, and we don't really like it. Amen? If we're honest, anybody like to wait for stuff? I mean, I I don't. If I'm being honest, I don't like to wait. I want something, and I want it now. And that's a byproduct. I mean, our culture is is sowing that into our lives, church, and we we are buying it hook, line, and sinker. Everything, every product now, I mean, it just seems like all the products that are being made and sold and marketed to you and me are about doing something faster, easier, quicker, less work, more results. You know, I mean, the best example I can think of is the phones. You know, the phones are just getting, I mean, it's just getting ridiculous. Like they're just faster all the time. They say, you know, blazing 4G LTE speed. And next it's going to be 60G LTE speed. And the, the websites are going to pop up before you even get done typing it into your phone you know, you're going to be able to text faster than you can talk. I mean, just everything, it's got to be right now. It's got to be really fast, you know? And I find myself even becoming subject to that. Like when I'm on my computer and I type in a web address and, and you know, I see the little bar go across the top and it stalls for five seconds. I'm going, oh, what's going on with my computer? I got to call IT. I got to get them over here and get this thing fixed. And, you know, three seconds later, the websites pop up. Oh, never mind. But I mean, we just have this. It's instant. Everything's instant. You know, we want it. We want it now. Everything has a drive-through now. You can get... You know, it used to be you just could get a hamburger through a drive-thru. Now you can get pizza, you can get chicken wings, you can, all kinds of places have, have drive-thrus. Laundromats have drive-thrus, everything, because we want it quick, we want it now, we want to get through it. You know, express lanes, uh, interstates, I mean, everything that's being built and, and, and marketed in our culture today is all about quickly and getting it right away. And car commercials are like, oh, you got bad credit? Don't worry about it. Come on in. We'll give you a loan. We'll give you a car. You got... You're drowning in debt? Oh, no, we'll give you a car, you know, 20% interest. Come on. And they just want you to come in and just, just come in and get it. You don't need to wait. Why would you save up to buy a car? That's ridiculous. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what our culture is telling us. But we're buying into it in a lot of ways. 
Like you, you're actually looked at kind of weird if you actually say that you're gonna wait to buy a house till you have, you know, 50% of it to put down. People look at you like, wow, that's incredible, you know? Because we are just accustomed to this instant. Everything's right away, microwaves, you know, we wanna cook our food, we want it done in 20 seconds. If it's not done in 20 seconds, then it's not worth having, you know? Um, and that's really become part of, part of what, uh, what is infiltrating us. And we're, I, I'm, just, I'm sad because I see that, the, that our culture is, is dictating it to the church rather than the church showing culture, showing our community and our society that, hey, you, know, you don't have to have it right now. And frankly, I believe that instant gratification is, is really what's causing so much of the problems with, with our young people, single people that are, that are not waiting for marriage to have sex. You know, it's because I want it and I want it now. I, I hear about other people having it and I want it too because I heard it's fun, feels good, you know? And I'm sorry if I'm getting graphic here, but that's really what it boils down to. It's like, I don't want to wait. We know what the Bible says. It's crystal clear to us that sex in marriage is way better than sex outside of marriage, but it doesn't matter because we want instant gratification. And, and our society is almost pushing it. And even in churches, you're seeing kids that are almost embarrassed to admit if they're waiting. And that's, that's really, really sad. And I'm not saying that here at New Hope. Uh, we, we, we encourage our children, our kids, our young adults, our young people to, to wait. And Tony and Haley do a wonderful job. They teach on it all the time with their kids and do everything that we can do to encourage that. But the peer pressure is just phenomenal for stuff like that. And it's, and it's why we cave into that kind of stuff all the time and, and kids get in, into the situations they get into. And uh, it's all because of instant gratification. But God's plan for us is not that we would be instantly gratified. It was that, it's that we would sow seed and we would work and we would be patient. God is always trying to build patience in us, amen? No more is that relevant than when you're driving on the road. He's always trying to build patience in us. And, uh, you know, James said that we're supposed to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. Trial, to me, is something that takes time. It's not something that just happens one minute. We're supposed to consider it joy when we face trials. And then he gives us the reason why we should consider it joy is because it produces perseverance in us. It produces patience in us. It's producing character in us. And God is much more concerned about producing character in us than giving us a quick fix to get whatever we want when we want it. Amen? He's definitely not our piggy bank. So uh, those, are the, those are the three areas that, that I've seen uh, culture kind of leaking into the church. There's actually a lot more than that, of course. But uh, these are the three that I really felt like the Lord was kind of showing me. And, and again, I don't, I don't do this to, to make anybody feel bad because I can honestly say in all three of these, I, I'm, I, I struggle with them myself. You know, I struggle with, with humanism, me being the center of my universe. We all do. And, but it's, it's important that we're reminded of it. And when we see our culture going in that direction, going more and more in that direction, it's all the more important that we as the body of believers, that we stand strong in that and that we know the struggles that are there so we can come against them. And so what I want to do now is give you, the, give you four tools to live in counterculturally. And again, there's obviously a lot more than four, but these are four that, that I really want to hit home with today. And the first one is count the cost. Okay, it's so important for us that we count the cost in our salvation and in our life, in our walk with Jesus. I want to share a verse with you in Luke 14. Verses 28 to 33, it's, it's a little lengthy, but I want to read the whole thing. This is Jesus talking, giving an analogy. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule, ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? 
If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask them for terms of peace. And this is the verse I wanna wanna focus on. It says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In other words, he's saying, for those of you that do not consider or count the cost of what it is to be my disciple cannot be my disciple. And you know, we, we did baptism earlier in the service and, and I, I shared that verse from Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, or 2 Corinthians 5. Um, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That, that's the symbol of baptism. That is, hopefully when we get baptized, we counted the cost of that, that we're saying, what we're telling everybody that sees it and God is that uh, the old man is dead. It's no longer me anymore. I'm surrendering everything that I am. And when I come up out of that water, I'm a new creation and I'm fully surrendered and fully submitted to God and to what you want for me in my life and giving my life to you. You know, we sang a song today about surrendering. We sang a song today about I owe all to you. Those are words, if you pay attention to the words and the songs we sing sometimes, they're heavy. There's times I'm singing and I think, ooh, I hope I'm not being a hypocrite by singing this, you know? And we're all hypocrites at times when we sing. It's not intentional. We just, we're, just, uh, we're doing the best we can, amen? But, but what it boils down to is we have to, be, uh, we have to be diligent in that and knowing that there's a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. There's absolutely a cost to being a disciple. There's no, when you, if you came up to an altar one time and you said a prayer and you got saved and you were all excited, that's a great thing. But that is the very, very least you can do to be a disciple of Jesus is to come and say a sinner's prayer or give your heart to him. That's the very beginning. From there, your life is no longer your own. And I hope that when you got saved, somebody told you that. Like, listen, when you get saved, it's not about you just getting saved. Jesus is gonna come along with you on the ride. It's not a get out of jail free card or a get out of hell free card. This is you saying, that's it. My life's not my own anymore. It's all Jesus. It's all him doing, living in me and empowering me to do his work. You know, Paul, the, 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 one of the passages in all the Bible that, that I go back to all the time in my own life is where Paul asked God to take the thorn from his flesh. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. The grace of God is strength for each one of us, but it ha- it's only when we are weak. God, is, it, it sounds crazy to say this because God's not limited by anything, but he chooses to limit himself by the fact that if we are full of ourselves and we're still trying to do our thing and we're just wanting God to come along with us, he'll stand there and wait for you until you finally say, okay, God, I, I'm not doing it anymore. This, my life is yours. You're not gonna be my co-pilot. You're the one in charge. You're in charge and I'm only here to serve you. Jesus says that if, that if we don't take up our cross daily and follow him, that we're not worthy of him. That is one of the harshest verses in all the Bible. And it was Jesus himself that said it. He said, if you do not take up your cross daily and follow him, you're not worthy of him. The cross is a symbol of death. Now we make it look pretty here. That's a beautiful cross lit up, looks great. And we do it, of course we do it so we can see it as a symbol of what Jesus did for us. It's a great reminder and we love it. But let me tell you what that thing symbolizes is nothing pretty at all. It symbolizes death. And Jesus is saying, basically, when he says, if we don't take up our cross daily, he's saying, if you don't die daily and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Now, that's not, the kind of, that's not the kind of salvation where you just come up and say a prayer and you go do your thing and you have a fish on, your, on the back of your car. Okay? Salvation, there's a cost to pay if you want to be a disciple of Jesus's. And we have, to be, we have to be reminded of that, church. We have to be reminded. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for a week or 50 years. We have to constantly be reminded of the fact that there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. Because the flesh is always coming back. You know, unfortunately, 
when we wake up every morning, what wakes up with us is our flesh. And our flesh immediately, before you even get out of bed, already has plans for you, right? It's already got an idea of what it wants you to do that day. And it's all about you. It's all about making you better or it's about making you anxious or stressed out or fearful or depressed. That's the flesh working in your life. That's why Jesus said daily you have to take it up, daily. If it was a one-time thing, boy, we'd all be great. We'd all come up here. We'd all, we'd all take up our cross and we'd be good to go forever. But the flesh comes right back. The flesh doesn't just walk away and die and say, okay, we give up. Jesus, you win. The flesh doesn't do that. Until the day we die physically and we need to go be with him face to face, then the flesh will be no more. And I am looking forward to that glorious day, amen? But until then, we have to fight. And we have to remember that there is a cost to what we're doing. And I just, I want to say today that I believe that a lot of the problems we have in our life is because we don't give ourselves fully to the Lord. The areas that we will not surrender to him, the areas that we, we continue to hang on to, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, maybe subconsciously, those things are hard for us to let go. Those are the reasons for so many of us that we have problems that, that just consistently stay in our life because we're not willing to surrender those areas to him and we're not willing to count the cost. Uh, there's a, the verse in, in 2 Corinthians that I shared during baptism, the, the verse, two verses before that, um, 2 Corinthians five seventeen, it says, and he died for all that those who, sh- who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So basically kind of reiterating what I just said, that we have no, we no longer live for ourselves once we give our life to Jesus. We don't live for ourselves. We're living for him who died for us. He paid a great price for us. And, uh, and there's also a reason that the Bible says that, uh, that the, the road that leads to life is narrow and the road that leads to death is wide. You know, Jesus said, enter in through the narrow gate because the narrow road tells me that there's a cost to pay. If the roads were nice and wide, you can do whatever you want. You know, you've been on a real wide highway late at night, no one else is on the road. You can go across five, six lanes, do whatever you want and there's no consequences. If you're on a narrow road and you do that, you're gonna end up in the ditch, right? So Jesus is telling us, listen, the road is narrow if you wanna be my disciple, if you wanna follow me. Now it's not about rules and being religious and doing exactly the right things. It's not about that. It's more of a mindset that we're saying, okay, God, my life isn't my own anymore. It's yours. And I wanna live according to your word and I wanna stay where you want me to be. I'm not gonna let the world determine the standards that I live by. I'm gonna let your word determine my standards and I'm gonna walk with you. But I'm gonna know that I'm gonna have to make sacrifices to do that because the world doesn't make sacrifices. They just do whatever feels good. So for us as believers, we have to make sacrifices to make sure we're living according to the word of God. And so we have to count the cost. Uh, the next thing, the next key tool that God gives us is they before me. And I'm pretty sure that grammar is horrible, but uh, I wanted to get my point across that basically, so if God is first in our life, our, our life is meant to be God-centric, right? Not egocentric. It's meant to be God-centered. Well, then for some of us, we would think, well, then that means I'm, I'm next. I'm after God. Well, I'm sorry to be the one of the bearer of bad news today, but according to the word of God, you're not even second in your own life. You're third. The people that come before you is everybody else, others. The Bible tells us we are to consider others better than ourselves. In fact, let me read that verse in Philippians 2. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this is a crazy verse. I can't believe that Paul is telling us that, that we should consider others better than ourselves. You know, that's, that can be hard to read sometimes. Like, come on, Paul. You know, I'll do a lot for others, but to actually put them ahead of me, and uh, that's, a, that's a hard word to receive sometimes, if we're being honest, you know? 
I mean, so, some others, it's easy, you know, for my kids and my family, sure, I, I put their needs ahead of mine all day long. But this isn't just referring to the people that you love and are really close to you. This is talking about, I believe what Paul is talking about here is even the unsaved, people that aren't even necessarily in relationship with us. Because when, when, the, when the lost people, when the people that don't know Jesus, when they see that there's this Christian that's willing to put their needs ahead of their own, it makes them take notice. Say, okay, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? You know, they may be even skeptical at first. Like you have, a, you have something that you're trying to do here. And, uh, and really they're right. Because we do, we're trying to show them the love of Jesus so that they would give their heart to him as well. But, but to be able to, to, to serve others before ourselves is a, is, a, is a hard word to swallow sometimes. But you know what, when we, when we give our lives to Jesus and we're really in love with Jesus, we find that serving others is really where a lot of fulfillment comes in life, right? I mean, if, we've, if any of you work down at the bridge or you've, you've helped with any of the outreaches we do here, gone on a missions trip and just really sacrificed of yourself, given financially or given of your time, to others, in, some, in a lot of cases, people you don't even know, there is a sense of fulfillment that comes with that because that's the way God designed it. And the funny thing is, even the world sees that when they do it too. You know, you, that's not just a church thing. There's, other, there's people that, that have worked to, given their lives to help others uh, at, a, at, a, at their own sacrifice because they see that there is so much fulfillment in that. That's a principle that works across the line. The problem is too many, too many in the world don't really see it because they're not willing to go that way because of humanism, because of wanting themselves to be the center of the universe and because, oh, I'm too busy and you know, I'm all consuming with the things that are going on in my life. But God's plan for us is that we would consider others first. In fact, Jesus gave us an example in that same passage uh, in Philippians 2, in the next two verses, verses 6 and 7. It says, it's talking about Jesus here. It said, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. So Jesus went, didn't just say, okay, I'm God, and you guys have to do what I say because I'm God. He, he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. He relinquished that. He laid it down because he wanted to set an example for us. And by him laying that down, he took on the very nature of a servant. He didn't even take on the nature of just a regular human. He took on like in the caste system that was very present in that time. He was like down here. He was a servant. He was washing his disciples' feet. That was unheard of in that time. A teacher, a master would never bend down and wash one of his students' feet. It was unheard of. He broke all the rules because he wanted to set example for us that our life is meant to be poured out for others, to put their needs above our own, to make sure that that, uh, their needs are being met and that we would even be willing to live sacrificially so that we can help meet the needs of other people. And there's true fulfillment in that. Okay, and then the third thing, very simply, pray and read your Bible. Now, it doesn't get any simpler than that. It's almost, come, it's almost cliche to say, well, you got to pray and read your Bible. That's a tool that God gives you to, to, be, to live counterculturally. But really and, and truly, that, that should have probably been the first one, number one, because the Bible and prayer is the, are two of the tools that God gives us to communicate with him and to see his heart so that we can in turn impart that heart into our own lives, into the lives of others. You know, what, what I think about prayer, um, I, I'm just gonna be honest with you today. There's, there's days that I try really hard to pray and I'm just not into it. I'm just being honest. I love, I love praying. I love talking to my God, but there are days that I just like, I, I just say, Lord, you know, you know what I want or you know what I feel. You know how, who I am. I love you. Thank you, Jesus. And I go on my way. And, uh, you know, it, it probably took me about 30 seconds to pray that. And I, I, 
I feel, I, I want so much to want to be able to pray more, and I do. And I, I, I discipline myself, because prayer is a discipline, and so is reading the Bible. But, but it's so easy for us to forget sometimes that prayer is not just us talking. It's not just us you know, expressing something or putting something out there in the air. We're communicating with the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and we have direct communication with him. And, and I think for us, you know, with the, with the time that we grew up in, we don't really, we don't have an understanding sometimes of what it meant uh, or what it was like before Jesus came and gave us that, that privilege. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, it wasn't, not just anybody could talk to God. You couldn't do it. In fact, you know, when they had the temple, you know, you had the, the Holy of Holies was a, the place at the end of the temple. And there was a big veil that separated the, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the, the areas. And the only people that could go in there was a priest and he could only go in once a year and he had to wear a robe with bells on it so they could hear him in there because they'd tie a rope to his ankle and the rope came out out of that area so that if he didn't make the sacrifice right and God struck him down dead, they could pull him out of there without actually having to go into the presence of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I'd want to be the priest back then. That's a little risk. I'm not sure. I'd just, just assume him tell me what happened, you know? But the Bible says in Matthew that when Jesus died, at that moment, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That, that veil that separated us from the presence of God was completely torn in half and was eliminated because of what Jesus did. And what that means for us is that you and I have, have total access into the throne room of God. We have total access into being in the presence of God. The Bible says we can come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus did for us. Now, I don't know about you, but that can make me pretty excited and happy to know that I can come in and talk to my Jesus whenever I want and I don't have to fear that if I say something wrong, he's gonna knock me dead, amen? And so when we look at it in that perspective, prayer is such a privilege to be able to come to God and know that not only does he hear us, he's waiting for us to come to him. He's waiting for us to to give ourselves to him in prayer so that he can speak to us, so that he can impart into us and so that he can empower us to be what he called us to be. And so, we, but we have to be diligent in that. You know, prayer and Bible reading are two of the things in, in the church and the Christendom that are the most talked about and least practiced things. And it's something for us as believers, when we see our culture and our society go in the direction it's going, we have to have a sense of urgency with that. We have to have a sense of urgency to get before God and see his heart in this because we are the remnant that he has called to live for him and be an agent of change for our culture and our society. So take, take the time, make time, be diligent, put it in your phone to remind you if you have to, to get up 30 minutes early or an hour early and get in the word, spend time with the Lord, reading your Bible. This, this, this here, it's another thing, you know, they, they didn't have access to one of these back in the Old Testament. You know, this wasn't something you could just pick up and, and read and get truth out of whenever you wanted. We, it, we take it so for granted because it's just so easy I don't even know how many Bibles I have. I lost count because it's just so easily and readily available for all of us. But even today, there's countries all over the world where this is illegal. For me to stand up and hold my Bible up in a church in some countries, they'd just shoot me dead or at least put me in prison. We have such a privilege to be able to read this. And I'm as guilty as anybody of having days where I just leaf through it and look for the shortest chapter I can find so I can read it and feel like I did something. You know, we've all done that. This isn't about making us feel guilty but it's about waking us up and, and helping us to see the need that's there, that we have a society that's counting on us, but we can't do anything if we don't have this in our heart. You know, and there's days I read this that sometimes it's, it's not, it doesn't feel very life-giving. I feel like I'm struggling through it. 
You know, there are days that I can't hardly put it down, but there are days that it's a struggle. And those days we just press through because we know that the word of God tells us that it's living and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And I've been amazed at the times that I've needed to know a scripture or needed something to encourage somebody. And all of a sudden the scripture came out of my mouth and I didn't even know what I said until after I said it. And I was like, hmm, I think that's in the Bible somewhere. And I look it up and lo and behold it is. And I think, yes, it's stuck, you know? But that's, that's what the word of God is. It's not, just, it's not like reading just any book. We have such a privilege to be able to get in this and there's, it gives us the tools and the strength and the fruit that we need to be able to live in this culture and be an agent of change. And then the last one is to get connected. And this is not uh, some ploy to just try to get you guys in connect groups, but, uh, well, yes, it is. Yes, it is. I do want everybody in connect groups. Um, We believe in connect groups, the small group ministry here at the church. And uh, it's, you know, one of the biggest, the craftiest schemes of the enemy, one of his craftiest schemes is to make Christians feel like there's no need for community. You know, because the world talks about independence. You know, I don't need anybody. Don't trust anyone. Be independent, be strong on your own. That's what the world says. And that's infiltrated the church for a lot of us. Do you know the average uh, for churches in America, people in the church that are actually connected, whether it's through serving or small groups or, or helping out in any way or just being part of the church is uh, between 10 to 15% of each church. If you go into any church in America, you can figure somewhere around 10 to 15% of the people are actually connected and serving and, and really uh, building in a community in their church. Now, I will say at New Hope, the number is higher than that. We are definitely above average. In fact, I, I'd say we're somewhere around 30, 35%. And that's great, but that still tells me that there's 65 to 70% of people in our church that aren't connected to a community. And connection is so important. You know, if you, if you, don't, if you don't believe it, then just look at the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. You know, this was before, like these people weren't even God-fearing necessarily, but they all came together and they said, they said hey, let's come together and let's build a tower that'll go to the, go to the heavens. And God said, I got to confuse their language. This is, where they, this is where we go back to where languages were created. God said, I have to confuse their language because if they can all work together in community and be unified together, there's nothing they can't accomplish. Now that's crazy to me that God had to confuse their language because there would be nothing they couldn't accomplish because they were working together. And, and you know, obviously there's a, there's, a, there's a sermon in there about unity but, but the focus that I, that I see with that for today is, is the fact that community is so strong. It's so important for us to be in community and to be encouraged by other believers. And, you know, I'm not saying if you're not connected here, I'm not saying you have to get connected here necessarily, but you need to at least be in some kind of community with other believers that can encourage you and lift you up and pray for you and challenge you and rebuke you if you need it, uh, whatever you need, but to really encourage us in the Lord so that we can be what God's called us to be. So, so we can be that remnant that's strong. So we can be that city on a hill. So we can be uh, growing in our faith and constantly uh, looking to, to, to be that person that God can use to change people's lives and to also empower us to live for him. So it's, it's so important that we get connected. Uh, you know, the, the Bible says that one can put a thousand to flight and two can put 10,000. That is, a, that is a great, as, as great of an argument for community as anything in all the word. I mean, that's some great math. One can do 1,000, two can do 10,000. That's pretty remarkable. Imagine what three can do. Imagine what we can do, yes. you know? And there's, there's power in that. Sometimes you can't even see necessarily what's happening when, it, when we talk about, you know, two putting 10,000 to flight, but we know that God has designed us for this. He's designed us for, for community. You know, he, the word says to not forsake the gathering of the believers together. We're, we're meant to be in community together. And you guys are here today, so obviously you buy into that at least to some degree, amen? 
unless you just stumbled in here off the street and don't even know why you're here. And if you did, I'm glad you're here today. This is why you're here. Amen. And so we're, we're glad you're here. But, but um, I, I just wanted to encourage you with that. I'm going to ask Steve to come as I close. And um, I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me. I'm going to read this verse that I read at the beginning. I'm going to read it one more time from Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read the message version of it again. It says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Now, I know that this can seem overwhelming, you know, I, I, I hope that, that this word doesn't make you feel like, oh, I'm a horrible person, you know, because that is absolutely not what it's designed to do. It's designed, the reason I felt like the Lord wanted me to share this was just to give us kind of a reminder and give us, uh, help us to, if we have kind of steered off the, the narrow path that we would come back on. That's the beauty of the grace of God is it doesn't matter how far you veer off the path, you're only one step away from being right back on it. Amen. The grace of God covers all. And I'm thankful for that today. And like I said, I'm being transparent with you. These, these same struggles, I, I, I've definitely allowed them to influence me in my life. And I'm not talking about like 10 years ago. I'm talking about in the last month. And, uh, but it's just it's so important that we're diligent about it and that we're aware of it. So we know the enemy's tactics and the tactics of our flesh that we come against it. So I'm gonna ask you to, to, to respond this morning. I'm gonna ask the, the prayer leaders to come up, please. The staff or board members or small group leaders, you can come up. We're gonna have a time of prayer. Uh, Steve's going to play a song. If, if you want prayer, if you want to respond to this, I encourage you to come to the altar and you can pray on your own or you can pray with one of our leaders here. They'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, if you need prayer for anything else, healing, physical healing, or you need uh, whatever your need may be, we believe that we believe in the power of prayer and that God can, can move on your behalf. So, so don't hesitate to come up if you, if you need prayer. As we sing, I just ask you to respond. God bless you.